0: Chapter Nine of At the Time Appointed This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. At the Time Appointed by A. Maynard Babur. Chapter Nine Two Portraits. The winter proved to be mild and open, so that Darrell's weekly visits to the Pines were made with almost unbroken regularity, and to his surprise, he discovered, as the months slipped away, that instead of a mere obligation which he felt bound to perform, they were becoming a source of pleasure. After a week of unremitting toil and study, and contact with the rough edges of human nature, there was something unspeakably restful in the atmosphere of that quiet home, something soothing in the silent, steadfast affection, the depth of which he was only beginning to fathom. One Saturday evening, in the latter part of April, Darrell was, as usual, descending the canyon road on his way to the pines. For weeks the winter had lingered, as though loath to leave, and Darrell, absorbed in his work and study, had gone his way, hiding his loneliness and suffering so deeply as to be oft-times forgotten, even by himself, and at all times unsuspected by those about him. Then, in one night had come the warm breath of the west winds, and within a few hours the earth was transformed, as though by magic, and the restless longing within his breast awoke with tenfold intensity. As he rode along, he was astounded at the changes wrought in one week. From the southern slopes of the mountains, the snow had almost disappeared, and the sunny exposure of the ranges was fast brightening into vivid green. The mountain streams had burst their icy fetters, and, augmented by the melting snows, were roaring tumultuously down their channels, tumbling and plunging over rocky ledges in sheets of shimmering silver or foaming cascades. Then their mad frolic ended, flowing peacefully through distant valleys onward to the rivers, ever chanting the song which would one day blend in the great ocean harmonies. The frail flowers clinging to the rocks, and smiling fearlessly up into the face of the sun, the silvery sheen of the willows along the distant watercourses, the softened outlines and pale green of budding cottonwoods in the valleys far below, all told of the newly released life currents bounding through the veins of every living thing. From the lower part of the canyon the wild, ecstatic song of a robin came to him on the evening breeze, and in the slanting sunbeams myriads of tiny midges held high carnival. The whole earth seemed pulsating with new life, and tree and flower, bird and insect, were filled anew with the unspeakable joy of living. Amid this universal baptism of life, what wonder that he felt his own pulse quicken and the warm life blood leaping swiftly within his veins. His heart but throbbed in unison with the great heart of nature, but its very beating stifled him as the sense of his own restrictions came back upon him with crushing weight. For one moment he paused, his spirit struggling wildly against the bars, imprisoning it. Then, with a look toward the skies of dumb, appealing anguish, he rode onward, his head bowed, his heart sick with unutterable longing. Arriving at the Pines, he received the usual welcome, but neither its undemonstrative affection nor the restful quiet of the old home could soothe or satisfy him that night. But, if his host and hostess noted the gloom on his face or his restless manner, they made no comments and asked no questions. On going upstairs at a late hour, he went across the hall to the libraries, in search of a book with which to pass away the time, as he was unable to sleep. He had no definite book in mind, and wandered aimlessly through both rooms, reading titles in an abstract manner until he came at last face to face with the picture of Kate Underwood. He had seen it many times without especially observing it, but in his present mood it appealed to him as never before. The dark eyes seemed fixed upon his face with a look of entreaty from which he could not escape. And, drawing a chair in front of the easel, he sat down and became absorbed in the study of the picture. Heretofore, He had considered it merely the portrait of a very young and somewhat plain girl. Now he was surprised to find that the more it was studied in detail, the more favorable was the impression produced. Though childish and immature, there was not a weak line in the face. The nose and mouth were especially fine, the former denoting distinct individuality, the latter marked strength and sweetness of character and while the upper part of the face indicated keen perceptions and quick sympathies, the general contour showed a nature strong either to do or to endure. The eyes were large and beautiful, but it was not their beauty which riveted Darrell's attention. It was their look of wistful appeal, of unsatisfied longing, which led him to at last murmur while his eyes moistened. "'You, dear child,' How is it that in your short life, surrounded by all that love can provide, you have come to know such heart-hunger as that? Long after he had returned to his room, those eyes still haunted him. Nor could he banish the conviction that sometime, somewhere, in that young life, there had been an unfulfilled void, which in some degree, however slight, corresponded to the blank emptiness of his own." The next morning Darrell attended church with Mrs. Dean. The latter was a strict churchwoman, and Darrell, by way of showing equal courtesy to host and hostess, usually accompanied her in the morning, devoting the afternoon to Mr. Underwood. After lunch, he and Mr. Underwood seated themselves in one of the sunny bay windows for their customary chat. Mrs. Dean, having gone to her room for the afternoon nap, which was as much part of her Sunday program as the morning sermon. For a while they talked of the latest developments at the mines, but Mr. Underwood seemed preoccupied, gazing out of the window and frowning heavily. At last, after a long silence, he said, slowly, I expect we're going to have trouble at the camp this season. How is that? asked Darrell quickly, in a tone of surprise. "'Oh, it's some of this union business,' the owner answered, "'with a gesture of impatience, "'and about the most foolish proposition I ever heard of at that. "'But,' he added decidedly, "'they know my position. "'They know they'll get no quarter from me. "'I've steered clear of them so far. "'They've let me alone, and I've let them alone. "'But when it comes to a parcel of union bosses "'undertaking to run my business or make terms to me, "'I'll fight to a finish.' And they know it. Darrell, watching the face of the speaker, saw the lines about his mouth harden and his lips settle into a grim smile that boded no good to his opponents. What do they want? Higher wages or shorter hours? he inquired. Neither, said Mr. Underwood shortly as he relighted his pipe. After a few puffs, he continued. As I said before, it's the most foolish proposition I ever heard of. You see, there's five or six camps, old-told, in the neighborhood of our camp up there. One or two of the lot, like the Buckeye Group, for instance, are run by men that haven't much capital, and I suppose are working as economically as they can. Anyhow, there's been some kicking over there among the miners about the grub, and the upshot of the whole thing is that the Union has taken the matter in hand and is going to open a union boarding house and take in the men from all the camps at six bits a day for each man instead of the regular rate of a dollar a day charged by the mining companies. "'The scale of wage to remain the same, I suppose,' said Darrell. "'So that means a gain to each man of twenty-five cents a day.' "'Exactly,' said Mr. Underwood. "'It means a gain of two bits a day to each man.' It means loss and inconvenience to the companies, and it means a big pile of money in the pockets of the bosses who are running the thing. There are not many of the owners up there that can stand that sort of thing, said Darrell reflectively. Of course they can't stand it, and they won't stand it if they've got any backbone. Take Dwight and Huntley. They've been too heavy expense in enlarging their mill and have just put up a new boarding house, and they're in debt They can't afford to have all that work and expenditure for nothing. Now with us, the loss wouldn't be so great as with the others, for we don't make so much out of our boarding house. My motto has always been, live and let live, and I give my men a good table, just what I'd want for myself if I were in their places. It isn't the financial part that troubles me. What I object to is this. I won't have my men tramping three-quarters of a mile for meals that won't be as good as they can get right on their own grounds. More than that, I've got a good, likely set of men, and I won't have them demoralized by herding them in with the tough gangs from those other camps. And above all, and once for all, here Mr. Underwood's tone became excited, as he exclaimed with an oath, I've always been capable of running my own business and I'll run it yet, and no damned Union boss will ever run it for me. How do the men feel about it? Have you talked with them? Darrell inquired. There isn't one of them that's dissatisfied, or would leave of his own free will, Mr. Underwood replied. But I don't suppose they would dare to stand out against the bosses. Why, man, if the working men only knew it. They are ten times worse slaves to the Union bosses, than ever they were to the corporations. They have to pay over their wages to let those fellows live like nabobs. They have to come and go at their beck and call and throw up good positions and live in enforced idleness because of some other fellow's grievances. They don't dare express an opinion or say their souls are their own. Humph. Mr. Underwood said Darrell, who had been smilingly listening to the other's triad. "'What will you do if this comes to a strike?' "'Strike?' he exclaimed in tones of scathing contempt. "'Strike? I'll strike, too. "'And they'll find I can strike just as hard as they can, "'and a little harder.' "'Will you close down?' The shrewd face grew a bit shrewder. "'If it is necessary to close down,' he remarked evasively, "'I'll close down. "'I guess I can stand it, as long as they can.' Those mines have lain there in those rocks, idle for centuries. For aught that I know, twon't not hurt em to lie idle a few weeks or months now. Nobody'll run off with em, I guess.'" Darrell laughed aloud. "'Well, one thing is certain, Mr. Underwood. I, for one, wouldn't want to quarrel with you.'" Mr. Underwood slowly shook his head. "'You'd better not try it, my boy. You'd better not.'" "'When do you expect this trouble to come to a head?' Darrell asked at length. "'Sometime in the early part of July, probably. They expect to get their arrangements completed by that time.' A long silence followed. Mrs. Dean came softly into the room and took her accustomed seat, and as Mr. Underwood made it a point never to talk of business matters in his sister's presence, nothing more was said regarding the prospective disturbance at the mines.' After dinner, the beauty of the sunset brought them out upon the veranda. The air was warm and fragrant, with the breath of spring. The buds were swelling on the lilacs near the house. And out on the lawn, beyond the driveway, millions of tiny spears of living green trembled in the light breeze. "'David,' said Mrs. Dean presently, "'Have you shown Mr. Darrell the picture of Catherine that came yesterday?' "'I declare no. I had forgotten it,' Mr. Underwood exclaimed. "'It is well for you she isn't here to hear you say that,' Mrs. Dean remarked smilingly. "'Puss knows her old father well enough "'to know he wouldn't forget her very long. "'Bring the picture out, Marcy.' Darrell heard Mrs. Dean approaching, "'and turned with the glory of the sunset in his eyes. "'Don't you want to see Catherine's new picture?' she inquired." Her words instantly recalled the portrait he had studied the preceding night. And with that in mind, he took the picture she handed him and silently compared the two. Ah, the beauty of spring, everywhere confronting him, was in that face also. The joy of a life as yet pure, untainted, and untrammeled. It was like looking into the face of the spring flowers, which reflect only the sunshine, the purity, and the sweetness of earth. There was a touch of womanly dignity, too, in the poise of the head, but the beautiful eyes, though lighted with the faint dawn of coming womanhood, were the same as those that had appealed to him the night before, with their wistful longing. "'It is a fine portrait, but as I do not remember her, I cannot judge whether it is like herself or not,' he said, handing the picture to Mr. Underwood, who seemed almost to devour it with his eyes. Though he spoke no word, and not a muscle moved in his stern, immobile face. She is getting to be such a young lady, remarked Mrs. Dean, that I expect when she comes home we will feel as though she has grown away from us all. She will never do that, Marcy, never, said Mr. Underwood brusquely, as he abruptly left the group and went into the house. There was a moment's silence, then Mrs. Dean said in a low tone, she is getting to look just like her mother. I haven't seen David so affected since his wife died as he was when the picture came yesterday. Darrell bowed silently, in token that he understood. She was a lovely woman, but she was very different from any of our folks, she added with a sigh, and I guess Catherine is going to be just like her. When is Miss Underwood expected home? Darrell inquired. About the last of June, was the reply. Long after the sun had set, Darrell paced up and down the veranda, pausing at intervals to gaze with unseen eyes out over the peaceful scene below him. His only companions, his own troubled thoughts. The young moon was shining, and in its pale radiance, his set face gleamed white like marble. Like and yet unlike, it was to the face of the sleeper "'journeying westward on that summer afternoon eight months before. "'Experience, the mighty sculptor, was doing his work and doing it well. "'Only a few lines as yet, here and there, "'and the face was already stronger, finer. "'But it was the face of one hardened by his own sufferings, "'not softened by the sufferings of others. "'The sculptor's work was as yet only begun.'" End of chapter 11 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas